Mark chapter 7. I always love in that, in that song where it says, we'll, we'll make it known to our kids. And you look around, there's kids in the room. And you're like, oh, that's, that's like a real lyric right there. Like we, we, are, um, we are raising them. And they're listening. They're paying attention. And these little disciples are, uh, are really no different than you and I as well in terms of that. They're learning. We're learning. And we learn through the scriptures. We learn from one another. And as we go through the gospel of Mark together, we get to learn by, by watching and observing how Jesus handles different situations. This is our last Sunday in Mark for a while. Uh, John Bales will be preaching next week, and then we're into Advent. And so the whole focus shifts very much to the second coming of Christ through Advent. And then we start the year. So I'm not sure we'll be back to Mark. This is our last time here for a bit. And this begins a section of Mark where Jesus has mostly been wor- been ministering and teaching and stuff in the Galilee region around the Sea of Galilee and kind of his home base is there. And so now he, uh, he decides to get away from the crowds and from uh, kind of his fame is kind of growing there. And, and this is what they call his retirement ministry. But it's really more about him withdrawing into a non-Jewish part of the region so that he can spend time with his disciples. Uh, they, they've been watching a lot. They've been learning a lot and, and that kind of stuff. But he needs to get them ready because so far it's been pretty positive. He's done a lot of healing. He's been really well received in a lot of places. Not everywhere, but it's been pretty good. He needs to kind of pull them off to the side and get them ready for the difficulty that's now about to like start coming their way as he begins to head toward uh, his ultimate goal in, uh, cru- in the crucifixion. And so uh, he goes to a, an area in the north, and we're going to pick up in verse 24. And we're just going to go a few verses at a time. I'm just going to kind of hit pause here and there as we go through there. And there's no mention of the 12 in this text, but they're there. They're with him. Uh, the parallel text in Matthew 15, we kind of know that that is happening. And so um, I'd like to kind of think about this experience from their perspective. So if we can kind of just jump into their mindset. But uh, So start at verse 24. It says, And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house, and he did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. Okay, so right off the bat, you're like, okay, was it? That's weird, right? It's not weird. It's basically just meaning he he went to a completely different region, so he could kind of be anonymous for a bit because he wanted to spend time with the disciples. But yet his fame had had really spread even beyond you know the hometown of Galilee, uh, the home region of Galilee. So verse twenty five. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit, okay, that meaning like a, a possession by uh, a demon, uh, she heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. So you and I read that, that just sounds like a couple of details, but... But there are, there are three kind of like cultural, cultural dynamics that are worth paying attention to in this story. The first one, it says that she's a Gentile. And that is like, basically it just means that she wasn't Jewish. So in the Jewish world, there were two kinds of people. There were Jews and there was everybody else. 
And so she was not Jewish. And that, but that to them, though, meant that she was a pagan, basically. Jews had developed this very unhealthy perception of anyone that wasn't Jewish. And so they would often refer to them as, uh, as dogs, you know, as different like things. Just really just look down on anyone who wasn't Jewish. It was it kind of the, the whole like we're the chosen people of God thing had kind of backfired a little bit in terms of like their own uh, like self-awareness. And they just kind of thought that they were better than everyone else. And um, that's kind of a human nature thing, I would imagine. And so, uh, so first of all, she's a Gentile. So that was... That's worth paying attention to. The second, it says that she is Syrophoenician by birth. Um, so if you look on a map, uh, this region is north of Galilee, but it's kind of on the, it's right on the Mediterranean. This was a part of the region where the worship of Baal came from, B-A-A-L. And this was one of the most uh, effective idol worship battles that we see fought throughout throughout Scripture. It's that the people of God uh, began to uh, intermingle socially, but also in marriage and that kind of stuff, with people from other regions. And in those other regions, they would worship all these idols. And so the people of God got just real drawn into this worship of this false god named Baal. And being Syrophoenician means that that's where, that's where she comes from. So not only was she a Gentile dog, but she was also Syrophoenician, which like they were, they were the problem people like, Oh, you brought, you introduced Baal worship into, into our, like, like you infected the people of God with this kind of idolatry. And so that made it even worse, uh, their perception of this person. Then the third thing is that she was a female. We have to note that as well. This was, I mean, this was absolutely a patriarchal society where the men had all the power and the women were considered less than in every, in every possible way. And so a Gentile Syrophoenician woman coming to a Jewish rabbi, this would have made every one of those 12 kind of lean in a little closer and be like, all right, we ain't seen this yet. Let's see how he handles this one. That's three no-nos right there. What is he going to do? How is he going to handle this request? Because if they had been in a Jewish region, uh, they, they know how Jesus would handle people coming up and saying, my daughter's possessed by a demon. Can you help her? But this was a completely different scenario for them. So seeing it through their lens, let's look and see what his response was. Verse 27. He said to her, let the children be fed first. For it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. That sounds like Jesus, right? I'm kidding by that. Okay. Let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. So you and me, in our day and age, with no idea what that means at first. You know, you read it and you're like, ah, is Jesus having a bad day? You know, like, did he, was he like, I'm trying to be anonymous here. Let me just insult this woman so that she will go away. 
Is that the lesson for the twelve? No, obviously you know, not. Um, the twelve would have paid attention to what he said differently than you and I. And so there are times when you're studying the Bible and it's like very plain, like you, you read it and you're like, this is exactly what it means. It's very obvious. This is one of those times when a good study Bible or a good commentary can kind of help you peel back the layers a little bit and say like, what's really going on here? And sometimes you have to d- dig a little bit deeper. Um, so what, what does Jesus' response tell the disciples and tell us? Let me give you a, there's one big picture thing and then there's some details underneath it. The big picture thing that he tells, that this tells us, is that Jesus has come here to execute a plan. Like a very specific plan. He sums it up in basically saying bread's going to go to the children first and then to the dogs. Now, that needs a little bit of explanation. But... That is, a, that is an ordered plan. Jesus has not come here to just kind of like, I don't know, I'm just going to kind of roll around and like uh, go from place to place and heal some people and teach some people. And I don't know, if I feel like moving, I will. Like, like this is not like haphazard. Jesus has come with a very specific plan. He is very much led by God through uh, to all the different places, to all the different people. Everything is a part of a plan, even if it seems random at times. Uh, it's a, a part of a plan. And the, the trajectory of the plan we see played out through Scripture. It starts in the very beginning. You don't need to turn here. We're not even going to put these on the screen. But in Genesis 3, in the, in the, when, when everything went wrong, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, and all the brokenness that came from that rebellion, there's one verse, Genesis 3.15. It says, I will put enmity, this is God, to the snake. Like, basically, God to Satan. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. And this is what it says. He, we don't know who he is explicitly, but we know that it's Jesus. Basically, Jesus shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. He tells the devil, like, yeah, you're going you're gonna to get your shots in. You'll, you'll get his heel, but he's going to crush your head. There's an episode of The Office where uh, Michael Scott burns his foot on a George Foreman grill. And Dwight has a concussion from a car accident. And they go to the doctor and Michael is trying to show that his foot injury is just as serious as the head injury. And he asks the doctor, doctor, what's more serious, a foot injury or a head injury? And the doctor immediately, head, absolutely. That is what, uh, that's where they got this from. says, yeah, you're going to, Satan, you're going to nip at the heels of the Redeemer, but he's going to step on your head and crush you and kill you because a head injury is much worse than a foot injury. That is Genesis 3. From there, God makes a promise, uh, a group of promises to a fellow named Abraham. He says that um, I'll make you exceedingly fruitful. I'll make you into nations. Kings shall come from you. I'll establish my covenant between you and me and your offspring. And throughout the generations, this everlasting covenant. Because your offspring will be as numerous as the, the sand on the seashore. And all the nations will be blessed through your lineage. So he makes this promise to this guy. Basically says, what I said in Genesis 3, you're going to be the start of this. And he makes these promises, 
He says, I, I know that you guys don't have kid, kids yet, but you're going to have a kid of your own. And then uh, he's going to get married and they're going to have kids. And you're, like, your descendants are going to be so vast. I'm going to make you into this nation. And then through them, the rest of the nations are going to be blessed. And so Abraham says, okay, I believe you. And they had a kid. And the more kids... And then all those kids are taken into slavery in Egypt and Moses leads them out. And so they establish their land through Moses' leadership. And then Joshua helps them get established in the land and they look like they're a nation. But then when David becomes a king, they really become a nation. And then you read in Matthew 1 about the whole lineage pointing toward Jesus coming as a fulfillment of Genesis 3 and honoring the promises to Abraham. It just keeps unfolding. And then uh, Jesus comes and he brings salvation to the, to the Jews first. And then in Acts uh, chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit comes, it goes to all the nations. And we see at the end of the story, all the nations gathered together to worship. And so this trajectory, this plan that's being executed is, is very, very specific. And Jesus is basically saying, look, here's what I'm here to do. I'm here to bring the bread of life to the Jews first. And then through them, all the nations will be blessed. It's all the whole storyline. He just sums it up right there. That's the overview. That's the, that's the big takeaway is Jesus is saying, I'm here to do something very specific. And, if, and it's going to happen in a way that is systematic and ordered, but it's going to happen. First to the Jews, then to the nations. Now, as learners in this situation, the specifics of what he's saying are also like very important. So that's the big overarching idea is that there is a plan he's here to execute. Let me give you three, three details that are embedded in here as well that are very important. The first one is that the nations will be blessed. Like that is something we have to grab onto is that the trajectory of the story is that the, all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. Every nation, every tribe, every tongue, salvation and the opportunity to know who God is and to know his invitation into actual life with him will go to everyone. Now at this point in the story, he, it's the plan, there's still more of the plan to go. But that detail that the nations will be blessed it's absolutely a thing. So to the 12, for them to hear it, a part of what Jesus is doing is he's saying, hey, you got to stop calling them dogs. I know you're thinking, but he called them a dog. I'll get to that in a second. A part of the point of this is that you, you can't call them dogs. You can't think of them as dogs. You got to see them as recipients of the plan. They're part of the plan. And you've been calling them dogs and you've been using certain, there's certain terms that, that they have been using, but the word that Jesus uses here is not the normal term for a pagan, heathen, like terrible, like whatever, mangy dog, scavenger, like whatever. The word he uses here is the one that you use for the family pet, like the family dog. That's... They would have noticed that. Like, oh, he didn't call them like mangy varmint mutts. He called them like our our family dog's name is Gilly. He called her Gilly. <laughs> Whatever your dog's name is. Now, I know there's like dog people and there's cat people. And I'm I'm a dog person, nothing against cat people, but I mean come on. Um 
And like dogs are like, this is something I've just become more honest about lately. Like, like if you want to get me like bawling, crying, show me a, like a sad dog video on Facebook and I'm a wreck. Like dogs are, they're such like a part of the, of the family, you know? So for God, for Jesus to use this word, I think he's bringing in this, this more like, like inclusive, affectionate term, almost, almost like he's like, he kind of like winks when he says it a little bit, you know, like he's saying to her, like, I know what they call you, but this is what I, I, I understand, understand. Think of it differently. He says, well, you're not going to take children, food from your children and give it to your family pet. We all know family pets. They're able very quickly to spot the messiest eater at the table. And they go just sit there and wait. It's almost like Jesus is saying, hey, it's, I know they call you dogs, but that, I don't, this is how, I look at you as part of the family. It's just, we, we're going to go in order. So it's like he's maintaining the order, yet the language and the tone, he's making it much more relational. I read somewhere they said it's just a a much more affectionate word that he uses. So he's preparing these disciples for the for the countercultural like um, openness and inclusion of the kingdom of God. They don't think that way. They're, they're too young. They're too inexperienced. They've grown up in a culture where you called everyone who wasn't like you a dog in the derogatory sense. And Jesus is now using this as an opportunity to show them like, hey, they're not, they're not dogs the way that you're talking about. They're like, they're part of the family. The bread's getting to them eventually. There's a plan in place. He's correcting their... Uh, you could call it racist. You call it whatever. You, there's all these different terms, but he's correcting their view of people that are not like them. And I think for us as learners, we have to we have to understand that people that are like anyone that's not like you, they are uh, they are a part of what God is doing. They are part of the plan. And so whether we're talking about uh, skin color or ethnicity or how they talk or how they dress or how much money they make or don't make or anyone that's just different from you, Christian or, or not Christian, everyone's a part of the plan. Can you amen that for me? Like I... I need to know that we're on the same page about that because it is very, it's a very normal thing to be arm's length with people that are not like you. They fell into the trap. Every culture has fallen into that trap. Guess what? The people of God, we, we cannot fall into that trap. We claw our way out of that trap by the grace of God. That anyone that is not like us, it really comes down to, do you know Jesus or do you not know Jesus? Either way, I'm loving you. I'm gracious with you. Like I am, I am like, we're good. I just want to know, have you received the, the bread yet? Or are you still waiting for the bread? But the bread is meant for you. 
And so we have to actively reject any, any of those divisive things in our culture and in our lives that is keeping us from seeing other people the way that Jesus does. And that's going to look different for everyone in this room. But there has to come a, a point in our maturing as disciples where we're not afraid to ask the Lord, hey, am I, like, am I carrying around racist tendencies? Do I have these prejudices that are, are actively at work? Am I consciously or unconsciously uh, being divided from those who are a part of the plan? And as he begins to show you things, this, that, the other, whatever, that we are humble enough to say, will you, will you help me get out of that pit? Will you help me get out of that trap? Because the, the kingdom of God is for everyone. And we have to be very careful not to be distracted or to be divided on this point. Because, of course, we have an enemy who would love to distract us and divide us on this point. He, would lo- he loves to see the church dig uh, uh, um, dig into some of those like like cultural divisions that are just kind of out there and a part of the brokenness of our world. He loves to see that. And he'll use whatever it takes. He'll use fear to make you afraid of someone that isn't like you. He'll, he'll use politics. He'll use patriotism. He'll use money and finances. He'll use whatever he can use to distract us and divide us to get us away from what Jesus is illustrating to these disciples that day. And we got to rage against it. It is demonic to be divided in that way. And it is holy and godly to just embrace this beautiful plan to reach every single person, no matter, no matter what. Fill in the blank with whatever kind of description about them. Everybody is, is in that category of who we're trying to connect with. Every single person. You okay? you believe that? And, and I'll be honest with you. I'm always honest with you. But if you, if you aren't there yet, then that just shows, shows you where to start praying. And say, God, I don't even know if I agree with that. God's not afraid of your honesty. He's not afraid of, of, of his children bringing them their concerns or their questions or their confusion. So don't push away from it. Say, I, I want to be the kind of person who, uh, who doesn't look at people that aren't like me as, as dogs. I want to see them as part of the plan. It's what we're here to do. God, will you help me? Friends, will you help me? Community group, will you help me? Church, will you help me? Can we help each other? We obviously live in a, in a country and in a city that is very much divided on all these kinds of things. And we are here in part to show the, the falseness of all those divisions. And we don't, we don't compromise on who Jesus is. We don't compromise on, 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 you know, on, the, on the truth, but, the, but we're here to tell them the truth is all those things just describe us. They don't define us. Christ in you defines you. And if you want him, he wants you. We want you. Come on, let's do it. That's the first thing. I'm going to move on. But by honoring the faith of this Syrophoenician Gentile, Jesus models something really important for them and for us. Now, I want you to think about it. You got 12 Jewish kids watching this happen. You got a, a Gentile Syrophoenician woman 
and probably some other folks that watch, everybody is watching Jesus level the playing field. That's the first thing. Second thing, and the details of this big plan, is that women will be an equal part of all of it. Women will be an equal part of all of it. No one is a bigger champion of women than Jesus. And so is Paul, and so is Peter. And sometimes the scriptures are kind of hard, like you're kind of like, how do you, how do you wrestle with some of these things? Jesus is setting gender right side up, but he, he eases them into it culturally, okay? He eases them into it, but that is what he is doing. And so in their day, you hear these 12 Jewish boys who, just because she's a Gentile Syrophoenician, they, they would have thought, send her away. But because she is a woman, they would have also thought, send her away. And here's Jesus once again being like, no, that's not how it works in my kingdom. In my kingdom, the men and the women are both made in the image of God, both deserving of dignity and respect because of that. And just, just because you guys have struggled with how to treat each other doesn't mean that I have to join you in that struggle. I'm here to set it right side up. And so for these Jewish boys, the fact she was a woman was enough to send her away. But for Jesus, he's like, no, that's, that's, that's not relevant here. And so that would have been a lesson for them standing there. They would have noticed, not only is she a foreigner, but she's a woman. And our rabbi is talking to her. Our rabbi honors her request. Our rabbi did this. That's, that would have blown their minds. And hopefully that is a part of what went on to shape them into the kind of leaders that helped set this right side up. And so for us today, we look at that and, and obviously like women's rights, that's a, that's a, a very prominent issue in, in our day. And although we have made a lot of progress, I would say is like culturally, there's still so much work left to be done in this. To me, the church should be the lead, the lead voice in that equality. But what burdens me the most right now really is the, the continued objectification of women that seems to go against what we see the Bible talk about. And it could be pornography, it could be sexual assault, it could be... Um, there, there's just so much, so much that still exists. And I believe that when we see Jesus honoring a female in a culture where that was, where the opposite would have happened, we had to pay attention to it. And so I would say, women, please continue to speak up. Please, please continue to, to, um, to be who you are. Like we want to be a church and continue to strive to be a church that lives the way that Jesus did in regard to not only the nations and all those kinds of things, but also in regard to gender. That men and women are like truly treated and as, as uh, like in a way that's in touch with reality of being made in God's image. But men, let me tell you something. This is, this is between, between us. You know, it wasn't too long ago. I was at a, um, went to a conference on human trafficking. Me and Meg and Debbie got to present at, uh, in a breakout session at this conference. And I noticed that 
you know, here's, it's a, it was a national, uh, national organization, a faith-based conference. So this was all the churches and nonprofits, anything that has Jesus at the, at the base was invited to this. And there were, I think it was like 400 people there. There were probably 20 men. I don't think, I, I don't think I'm exaggerating. Like it was, it was rare when you saw one, you're like, Hey, what's up, dude? Uh, it was hard to be there because um, it's hard to be there as a man because here's this whole conference that is built around us being the problem. And yet there's so few of us, you just, you just felt like the enemy, you know. No, I wasn't treated like the enemy. It was just internal. And I was in a session, I was just kind of asking the Lord, like, what am I supposed to do with this? And I feel like he put something on my heart that I just want to pass on to you um, as, a, as a placeholder for future conversations. I feel like the Lord spoke to me and said, human trafficking, like global human trafficking is a thing because the church has failed to disciple her sons. Like the capital C global church has failed to disciple her sons in the treatment of women. Sexual assault is a thing because the church has failed to disciple her sons. Pornography is a thing because the church has failed to disciple her sons. Dudes, we got to disciple our, our sons. And that is not a call only to the fathers in the room. It's for all of us men to, to teach these guys coming along. To teach them better than we were taught. And they can teach theirs better than we taught them but to develop a culture that is consistent with the kingdom of God perspective on men and women, that that is uh, in our future, dudes. So, yeah, grab onto that one. So by honoring the faith of this Syrophoenician Gentile woman, Jesus models a key kingdom principle for them and for us. So the nations are a part of the plan, Women are part of the plan. Here's the third and final point. Is that faith is what will open the floodgates of heaven. The previous parts of the chapter 7, like Jesus had, had been like in the trenches, kind of fighting back and forth with these Pharisees who were so focused on the external things. They were obsessed with the external. And, and Jesus keeps going back to the heart, keeps going back to the heart. And so here he gets to this woman who comes in and she has enough faith to say, will you, will you free my daughter of this demonic possession? And so Jesus just walks out what he had been preaching before, that it is not about behavior. It isn't about where she's from or what she looks like or what she's done. It isn't about any of those external things that everyone is obsessed with. It is a faith thing. So verse 28, in her response to him saying, uh, you can't take bread from the kids and give it to the family pet, verse 20, she answers him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. So we know in verse 25 that she had heard of Jesus. And that region is so packed together, like maybe, maybe she knew the plan. Maybe she was familiar with the plan. 
Maybe through her lineage, maybe she has like, like a Jewish background of some sort where she knew the promises to Abraham and through the prophets and all those kinds of things. She had enough knowledge to know, yeah, the bread goes to the Jews first, but it's coming to us too. I know that. Most commentators think that Jesus was kind of, was testing her a little bit to be like, do you just want your daughter healed? Or is there, is there more, more to it? And this shows, she's like, no, I know who you are. I know the plan. I know what's going on. And for a a Gentile female to approach a Jewish rabbi, there had to be something more happening. So verse 29, he said, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. I'm not saying like, oh, that was a good comeback. I'll give you what you want. Say, no, what you just said tells me something about what's going on in your heart. So yeah, I'll take, I'll take care of this. Because faith is going to open the floodgates of heaven. Not external stuff, not behaviors, not all the like, stuff that we tend to look at and get and obsess over. He's like, I'm looking straight at your heart. So yeah, you're right. The bread's getting to you eventually. Why not today? The disciples got to watch that happen. They got to watch him walk out what he had been preaching. And that it was and is and always will be by grace through faith. So by honoring the faith of this Syrophoenician Gentile woman, Jesus models something for us once again. So in this plan that he has come to execute, the nations are part of it, women are part of it, Everyone is a part of it by faith. The external stuff will take care of itself. He's just like, look at your heart. That's, that's what I'm paying attention to. That's what I'm looking for. That's what, that's what you need to be tending to the most. He's not saying the behaviors are irrelevant. He's just saying they're not primary. They come from somewhere. So let's get to the root of it. So... What, what do we do from here? Well, in, in a sermon like this, I really just feel like I'm supposed to just push you to ask yourself questions that might pertain to this. So our response time that we normally do, we'll do it the same, the same way we, we do. So if you're a regular around here, it'll be the same stuff. You can give at these giving stations here on the corners. You can come and kneel and pray at the steps if you feel like that is a response for you. We'll have some staff members here at the front that would love to talk with you about and pray with you about anything that's going on. But especially if you're like, look, you keep talking about being a disciple and following Jesus. I have no idea what that's about. You come talk to us. You can sing. You can receive communion. We'll have two stations set up. You take the bread. You dip it in the juice. Any of those things that you want to engage in that will help you connect with what God's doing. I want to make that a possibility. But let me ask you. Some questions first. In regard to the nations, do you need to just confess to the Lord that you have a ways to go in catching up with his perspective on people that aren't like you? In, in, in any way, ask him and then bring it to him. In regard to men and women, do you treat the opposite gender like they are made in the image of God? 
worthy of dignity and respect? Or do you have a pattern of using them for your own pleasure in some sort of way? Therefore, objectifying them, therefore moving them into the wrong category. The third point, are you ignoring your heart condition and obsessing over the external behavioral things? Whether that's something like how you look or certain patterns that are there and are you ignoring where that's coming from internally? Or fourth option is kind of like any of the above or anything else you want. But, but really, it's an opportunity to, to look at this, to look at our rabbi modeling something for us and saying, how far away am I from being consistent with who you are? You confess it. You ask him for help. He will help you. And whether praying or singing or giving or receiving communion, if any of those helps you connect with his grace in that, then we want to give you the opportunity to respond in that way. And look, Jesus will, will not turn you away. He will not turn you away. So I'm going to pray. The band's going to come. We'll go through those rhythms of response and we'll close in a few minutes. So let me ask you to stand while I pray. Father, I thank you for, um, for a passage that um, really at first was a huge mystery to me. I had no idea where this one was going to go. And uh, I'm thankful that that Jesus set such a perfect example for these kids and that we so long, so long after that are able to stand here and read it and or sit here and listen to it and just be blessed by just watching you so perfectly navigate a situation that was probably pretty dicey culturally. And so I'm sure across the room there's different application points but whether it's about people that like you or whether it's about our treatment of the opposite gender or about ignoring our hearts because of the external or whatever it may be, I just ask you, Father, to use this response time of, of praying and singing and giving and receiving to help us connect with you so that we can get everything out of this morning that you have for us. And so help us to steward these moments well together. And may you, um, may your will be done in, in these closing moments. We love you. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right. Our communion tables are open. You can come when you are ready.